Here we go. We uh, are. Uh, we, we ended Second Thessalonians last week, and since we have Resurrection Day coming up this week, I thought, well, what would be fitting to work in with that? And it happens to be dealing with the cross. Hey, how about that? <laughs> really creative, aren't I? Not really. What exactly happened at the cross? What did Christ accomplish at the cross? And when you think of the Gospels, you think of Jesus, you think of His life, and of course we're in the book of Luke, and you see um, His life, and, and then you see His betrayal, His arrest, you know, the scourging, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and, and of course the 40 days that, that He was here. You know, you think about Jesus Christ being human, being God, um, you know, in the flesh, walking, the story is all there. The New Testament then fleshes that out and puts the theological ramifications, the, the good consequences of what happened. Even though he said that you know we must be born again and and that there is repentance, there's forgiveness of sins. You know he taught all that and he taught doctrine. And of course that was one of the things that he did. And that's what we talked about Sunday about Jesus being the teacher. He, you know, he just kept teaching everywhere he went. Teach, 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 um, and so that's doctrine. But when you see the, um, especially the uh, books written by Paul, it's heavy doctrine on what that cross meant. And of course, he said, "I must die." You know, "I must die," and, and of course, that's how our sins are taken away. So. It's very vivid in the Gospels, and we must have the Gospels. We must see Jesus you know, in the flesh, living it out. But we also need to know how this really works. How, what happens? What happened there at, at the cross there? So I think it's very fitting just at this time of the year to, to focus on Christ and what He did for us. We say, well, He died for us. Yeah, but what, what does it mean when He died for us? What, what did He accomplish there? And so uh, the passages that we're going to be dealing with tonight should give us a lot of insight into the significance. It's not going to be really a lot of new stuff, but yet at the same time, it really should help us ponder. And this is doctrine that we need to delve into more and more anyway. Um, when you think of Christ, you think of the atonement, you think of the substitutionary atonement. Those are big doctrinal words, but they really mean something to us. There's a theological significance, and I will tell you, it's inexhaustible. And so we should be able to pick up some things, have some things that bring to reminder, and as we concentrate on this week, um, the week of uh, the Passion Week uh, that it's called, you know, we think of Christ as He prepared for His death and then His resurrection. Um, I think of Revelation chapter 5, verse 9, where it says, And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood, men from every tribe. There the saints are praising Jesus Christ. You're the only one worthy to take the, the book, to break the seals. You were slain. You were purchased for God. Now we know He died for us. You know, His blood was shed, but He died for God also. With your blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. 
and You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God, and they will reign upon the earth because of what He did, because of this blood of Christ. So, you know, the celebration, you know, it, you know, it begins even now as we, we devote ourselves to understanding this revelation, the significance of the atonement. So the atoning work of Christ, it, it is at the epicenter. It's at the very focus. You can't get anything more centralized than the, the atonement of Christ. It's the heart of the Gospel. And so that's where we're going to be at tonight. 1 Corinthians 15.3 says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He died for us. He died. He died for our sins to be forgiven. In 1 Corinthians 1.23, he says, we preach Christ crucified. Whenever the apostles went out, what did they preach? Christ crucified. Paul preached that. The apostles preached that. If we're preaching the right message today, that's what we preach, right? Christ crucified. There's no other message to preach. That's what it's all about. The word of the cross, 1 Corinthians 1.18. There again, that's the focus, the very center. Uh, the, uh, John Newton captured it well when he said, I advise you by all means to keep close to the atonement. The doctrine of the cross is the sun in the system of truth. Here's what's happened. Not only in liberal churches now, we're seeing it very much in what would be considered to be evangelical churches where they are denying the absolute substitutionary atonement and where Christ dies and He satisfies the wrath of God. Now that's the focus of the Gospel message, is it not? And churches are now denying that. And you're hearing many famous um, musicians, singers, who deny that also. Uh, who would say it was He set a, uh, a standard when He died on the cross, uh, but it wasn't that God the Father demanded Him to die for our sins. See, that's very offensive. And so therefore, they take that out. Once you take that out, you are no longer a church. You can have people gather, but if that is not the very centralized focus of our preaching where Christ is crucified for our sins, and of course the, the resurrection proves who He is, then what, what else do they have? How to be good. How to solve your finances. You know, how to get along with people. Well, all those things are part of the Gospel. But the fact of the matter is, Christ crucified is what is the power of our lives. So, one way to keep a, the, the close to the atonement is to ensure we understand precisely what happened. What happened at the cross? What, what went on? What, what significance does it mean to us? So the theme of the saints' praise for eternity, we read one verse there in chapter 5. They sang a new song. Worthy of you to take the book and to break its seals, for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood. You purchased men from every tribe, nation, tongue, right? In verse 11 of chapter 4, Worthy are you, our Lord and our God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things because your will, they exist and were created. That's the Creator God. And uh, He's the Creator and He is the one who recreates, right? So Jesus has accomplished in His work this atonement. And so there's significance to it. The Lord Jesus is the suffering servant. 
that we know of. Uh, in, in Isaiah 53.4, He has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Uh, if you listen to MacArthur, he's dealing with um, that thought. He's been dealing with Isaiah 53. One of the greatest classics. The Gospel is found right in Isaiah 53. 700 years before Christ. The Gospel is all over the Old Testament. But it screams out in Isaiah 53. Uh, 53.12 He bore the sin of many. He bore the sin. He carried it on Him. Uh, 53.11 He shall bear their iniquities. That's what He did for us. He bore that. Uh, John 1.29 Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What's a, what does a lamb do? He dies for the people's sins, right? Until Christ came and of course He was the Lamb. Uh the Father made Jesus to be sin on our behalf. 2 Corinthians 5.21 That means our sin was put on Him. Uh, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. Uh, in 1 Peter 2.24 He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross. By His wounds you were healed. Right? Um, what precisely is the character of the substitutionary atonement? Those are big words. What's the characteristic of that? What exactly did Christ accomplish at the cross? So that's what we're going to talk about tonight. We have 40 minutes left. And I have a whole bunch of points there, and I can almost guarantee you we won't be able to get through all of those, and we might have to come back and suffer through it next week. <laughs> it's not suffer. This is, this is what it's all about, folks. We, I mean, if there's a heart of the Gospel, uh, where we're going to be dealing with is at it tonight. The penal substitutionary atonement. Penal. People hate that. That means Christ was punished. Penal. Penalty. He took our penalty. He bore it. He suffered. He had a penalty. That is offensive to the modern day church. Yeah, you bet it is. Very offensive. And we run to it, don't we? Because substitutionary means somebody took their place. That's another thing they deny. They definitely deny penal. Substitutionary means He took our place. And atonement. So these words are really key. And we'll look at five different ones and probably one or two tonight maybe. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for these precious truths, the very heart, the key of the Gospel. And the Gospel entails a lot. It entails your whole story, Lord, but this part defines what it means when Christ died on that cross and how it is applied to us. Thank You, Lord, for the Gospels. Thank You for the epistles that explains what happened. Thank You for the Old Testament that gives us pictures of what happened or what would happen at the cross. Lord, give us understanding and help us to concentrate on this resurrection day that is coming up. And of course, the crucifixion. That Good Friday. And we can truly know why it was so good. In Jesus' name, Amen. amen. First thing we're going to look at is sacrifice. I'm talking fast tonight. There's a lot of stuff here. It's, it's deep stuff, but it's stuff that you probably have heard many, many times. But 
like I say, it gets deeper and deeper. Ephesians 5.2 Scripture characterizes the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ as a sacrifice. That's one of the things that Christ accomplished. There was a sacrifice done. Look at Ephesians 5.2. We'll see that word sacrifice. And we know that. I, I, most Christians would say, yes, He, he was sacrificed. You know, that's, I mean, that's a, about as basic as it can be, isn't it? Ephesians 5.2 says, And walk in love just as Christ also loved you and gave Himself up for us. That's sacrificial. Giving Himself up for us, but the Word is coming up. An offering and a sacrifice to God as a fragrant aroma. Sacrifice. You can look at the pagan religions. All of them had some kind of sacrifice to the gods to appease their gods. And in a sense, there is an appe- there definitely is an appeasement that Christ was, but far different than any of the pagan idolatry that went on. This was the true sacrifice. But where did those pagans get the idea of sacrifice and atonements and such? Every, everything that man has, they take from what truth is and do what? Distort it. That's what Satan does. Satan doesn't invent things. He takes truth and just twists it, perverts it, distorts it. And so that's what man does, and they take it, they take what truth is, and then they get some other idolatrous religion. So sacrifice, though, is biblical. It's all throughout the Old Testament. You find it right in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve, after there was sin there, and then of course you, you get the animals. Uh, Animals had to be killed. Uh, there were clothes put on Adam and Eve. Where'd that come from? God had to kill an animal to be able to put that on them, those animal skins. Blood had to be shed. Cain offered up a blood sacrifice. Or Abel did. Cain didn't. Sorry about that. Got that twisted around wrong. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 26. Again, sacrifice. We see that word here in the New Testament. Hebrew writer says, Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now, once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. He sacrificed Himself. He gave Himself up. Sacrifice. Did you know that's that's really what love is? To sacrifice yourself. That's the pure act of love, isn't it? The word is thusia there for for sacrifice. And so we, we get a picture from the Old Testament. Old Testament gives us the pictures. It gives us the ABCs. It gives us the building blocks, doesn't it? Where they could see that. So they practiced it every day, every week, every year. They had sacrifices that they would bring to the tabernacle and then later the temple. And they saw that over and over and over. And although that wasn't the ultimate sacrifice, it pictured what was to come in the person of Christ. And they looked forward to that. The priest looked forward to that. They knew what that was. And of course, they had plenty of revelation in the Old Testament. As you have Leviticus, as it begins, the tabernacle has been completed. You have Genesis, Exodus. 
as quickly as Exodus, as Moses writes that it is written, the glory of God has come at the end of Exodus. It filled the tabernacle. You remember the glory of God filled the tabernacle up. And that signified the spiritual presence of who? God. Yahweh, right? And that means He indwelt in the midst of the people. The presence of God was in the midst of the people. If you look in Exodus chapter 40, right at the end of Exodus chapter 40, verse 34, and verse 34, 40, 34, it's the very last... Verse 34, Then the Lord covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. I think that's quite significant, isn't it? This is the place of God. Throughout all their journeys, wherever the cloud was, taken from over the tabernacle, the sons of Israel would set out, but if the cloud was not taken up, when they did not set out until the day when it was taken up. For throughout all their journeys, the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. There was fire in it by night in the sight of all the house of Israel. That signified the presence of God. Wherever they went, God was with them. Of course, He's with them spiritually, but He's with us spiritually only thing is, He lives in us today because there's no tabernacle for Him to live in outside of our bodies. We are the temple, are we not? So the presence of God was there. By the way, it also presents His holiness. And so after Exodus, what is the next book? Leviticus. What does Leviticus present most of all? The holiness of God. Be holy for I am Holy. You'll find that in Leviticus. How can the holy presence of God dwell in the midst of a sinful people? That's the question, isn't it? The answer that God gives is that sinners are to make sacrifices to the Lord that will atone for the sin. And that will render them acceptable. Now that's in the Old Testament time period. They're to render these sacrifices and it's really picturing the ultimate sacrifice, because that's the only way they're going to be saved anyway, is the cross of Christ. But they show this by doing this. So we look in Leviticus now, in chapter 1, right after we've had Exodus, we saw the glory of the Lord, right? Boom, we go right into Leviticus. That's This is all the writing of the law. And in chapter 1, verse 3 and 4, if his offering is burnt offering from the herd, he shall offer it a male without defect. He shall offer it at the doorway of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hand on the head of the burnt offering that it may be accepted for him to make atonement on his behalf. There we go. That's how you find yourself acceptable. So... What God does is He works through two really key elements. Of course, there's sacrifices every day, but there are two sacrifice times that are done that stands out above all the rest. One of them is called the Day of Atonement. Atonement is a big word. The Day of Atonement. This is the pinnacle. This is the peak. This is the the very focus of the sacrificial system. Is the ceremonies of the Day of Atonement. And you see, really, this is pointing to cross, but this is once a year. 
High priest goes into the tabernacle later on through the, in the temple, goes through, goes all the way back to the holy of holies. Uh, there are, uh, and that's just the high priest. But he offers two goats, and and of course the one is to be sacrificed to God, and to bear the sins of the people and be banished from the Lord's presence. And of course that's called the scapegoat. And uh, if we look in Leviticus 16, as uh, Moses wrote this further, we've advanced quite a few chapters now. We've had all sorts of laws mentioned, but we're getting to the heart of why all this is done. In 16, verse 8, Aaron shall cast lots for the two goats, and one lot for the Lord, and the other lot for the scapegoat. Then Aaron shall offer the goat on which the lot of the Lord fell, and make it a sin offering. But the goat on which the lot for the scapegoat fell shall be presented alive before the Lord to make atonement upon it to send it into the wilderness as the scapegoat. Scapegoat's going to go and he's considered to leave abandoned. Right? Jesus, of course, whenever he dies is killed outside the city. That's The scapegoat has to go outside the camp. Right? And of course, Jesus is the representation of all of these things. We read 8 through 10, right? Let's read 15 through 22. I have to turn all the way back there again now. All the way back to Leviticus. And that's chapter 16, right? Verse 15, Then he shall slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people, and bring its blood inside the veil, and do with its blood as he did with the blood of the bull. Sprinkle it on the mercy seat and in front of the mercy seat, He shall make atonement for the holy place because of the impurities of the sons of Israel. Mankind. Because of their transgressions in regard to all their sins. See, there has to be a substitute for these people. What is it? It's these goats. It's these bulls. It's the lambs. Thus he shall do for the tent of meeting which abides with them in the midst of their impurities. When he goes in to make atonement in the holy place, no one shall be in the tent of meeting until he comes out, that he may make atonement for himself and for his household and for all the assembly of Israel. It's for him, his household, all of Israel that he goes in there just once a year and it's the high priest only to do that. To go into the Holy of Holies, that's the peak place that is the presence of God that's represented the most. Then he shall go out to the altar that is before the Lord and make atonement for it and shall take some of the blood of the bull and of the blood of the goat, put it on the horns of the altar, he applies it on all sides. With his finger he shall sprinkle some of the blood and on it seven times and cleanse it from the impurities of the sons of Israel and consecrate it. When he finishes atoning for the holy place and the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall offer the live goat. Uh, we go, you know, we can go on and on, right? Uh, I'll go on. Then Aaron shall lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the sons of Israel and all their transgresses in regard to all their sins. And he shall lay them on the head of the goat, send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a man who stands in readiness. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to a solitary land, and he shall release the goat in the wilderness where he's abandoned he dies 
This is the laying hands on the head, identifying with the scapegoat, confessing all of Israel's sins. The priest, high priest, does all this. Israel's sin is imputed to a substitute. That means when he's identifying that, now the sin that is on Israel's and the individual people is now imputed or taken and put on that goat. Right? As our sins were imputed to Christ, Christ's righteousness was imputed, counted as righteousness. So the innocent scapegoat bears the sin and the guilt, carries that on him, goes outside the into the wilderness. Now, that's the Day of Atonement. That was a key day of the year. And that's where repentance, the great prayer for repentance and such is. And then the high priest is doing this for all the people. Christ is our high priest today. We don't need any priest. We are priest. He is the high priest. He's already done that. He went at the cross, at the altar, and He's done that. And that's the work is done. His work is completed. Now that's the Day of Atonement. Then you have the Passover, which... Uh, Friday night is going to start the Passover. Uh, to uh, Israel's history, they are very well aware of what that was in comparison to the Old Testament. They really don't know the depth of that. Uh, probably very little uh, of of any meaning on it. They just do it because it's a big holiday for them. Uh, and most people aren't even really religious. They just do it because this is a what you do. It's a it's a heritage. But the, the Lord was about to send the tenth plague. You know, you have Moses, you have Egypt. He promised to kill every firstborn. Every firstborn. For all. Israel, Egypt. But Israel had been spared all those nine plagues, but on the tenth one, they're not automatically spared from that. They are to do something. What are they to do? Every family is to have a lamb. They, they get it on the 10th of Nisan, which would have been, let's say, Palm Sunday. They inspect that lamb, make sure the uh, cleanliness and purity for four days. On the 14th of Nisan, they take it to the tabernacle and off the head goes. They are identifying with that. You have little kids? Little kids identify that. That was like a pet you took into your home. And now, you're seeing that that pet had to give its sinless life for you. You had the sins. The lamb didn't. Something had to die sacrificially for you. Substitutionary, sacrificially, penally, atonement. (laughs) Get those words? Passover. Of course, you can find all that in Exodus 12. Yahweh forgave Israel's sins by a substitutionary sacrifice of the spotless lamb. And of course, if you look at 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, we get the fulfillment of this. And this is this week. I mean, this the Passover is literally coming up. And it usually coincides really closely to uh, what people call Easter, we call it First Fruits or Resurrection Day. I think it's better biblically that way. Um, Friday, they celebrate Good Friday when they, you know Jesus was 
killed on that day, and then on the third day he arose. Well, that's coinciding exactly the way it goes. That's the way the calendar falls this year. So he dies on Friday and resurrects on, on Sunday. When we come here Sunday, it was like, uh, by the way, this is kind of like a Good Friday message for us, okay? Um, because it's, it's speaking of death and, and um, a violent death. We're talking sacrifices, taking the knife and slitting the throat, blood all over the place. That's violent. It's kind of sad in a sense, isn't it? Sacrifice. So that's why people meet on Good Friday. But boy, when you come Sunday, you have the resurrection. And there's all the joy, isn't it? So consider this, our Friday, that we're doing on here on Tuesday. Is that, does that work for you guys? So if you go to a Good Friday, then you got double blessed. So, 1 Corinthians 5.7 says what? Somebody have that? 1 Corinthians 5.7 what did you say, Carolyn? I said, clean out the old leaven so then that you may be a new lump, just as you are facing, you have fact, fact, in fact, the unleavened. What's the next sentence? For Christ. Christ the Passover also has been sacrificed. Christ, Christ our Passover. Christ is the Passover. He fulfilled the Passover. We don't have to have a, a, a Passover day, although we've done it down through the years and now it's been a long time. Last time I did one was um, my 2013. But we did it at the old... Did we ever do it at the... No, you did it at that one church. You came there, didn't you, Frida? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was Emmanuel Baptist. Yeah. And... So that was 2013, 2012. That was the year that uh, the store shut down. I remember that real well. That's the reason I knew the date. Remember 2012. So, um, but it, it was a reenactment of what they do, what the Jews do, given the, going exactly the, the words that they would say and using scripture. And it's it's one of the best stories of the greatest story ever told. And it's all biblical. Matter of fact, it's all about the sovereign God. And of course, you eat as you go through that, and you see the symbolism. And of course, everybody always remembers the horseradish. Yeah. What's significant about the horseradish? Very strong. <laughs> Bitter. Bitter. Or you think of the salt in the water. Tears. You know, all because of the sin of mankind, the sin of the individuals, and. The, the bitter, the, the horseradish, how that is. And that's symbolic. It's like our Lord's Supper, which is part of the Passover. It just completes the Passover. And in Christ is the one who is the Passover. Anyway, I can't get enough of that story. And uh, I think we've, we've gone through it even on, on Sunday messages for Resurrection Day. And, you know, it's, you can't miss it, you know, obviously. But He is our Passover. He's the fulfillment. John 1.29, Behold the Lamb of God. Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. First Peter one, eighteen and nineteen. Knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your futile way of life, inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood, as of a lamb, just like the lambs were, unblemished and spotless 
the blood of Christ. Not the bulls, not the goats, not the lambs. Now this time, the blood of Christ. Peter got it by the time he wrote this epistle, by the way. When it happened, they didn't, did they? When that, all that was going on, they didn't get it. So, um, the fulfillment is an incredible thing. Jesus fulfilled that. God graciously allowed Himself to be temporarily satisfied by all of those sacrifices in the Old Testament. The daily sacrifices, the yearly sacrifice, uh, the Day of Atonement, uh, the Passover and that celebration and everything they have. Uh, It was never truly final. It was never... Uh, perfectly efficacious. Uh, Hebrews 9.9. Hebrews, it really explains that, especially in chapter 9, where Hebrews is really speaking to the Jewish people. And he's saying, hey, all of this is fulfilled. Uh, Christ is better than all that. He says in verse 9, dealing with the holy place, it's a symbol for the present time. Accordingly, both gifts and sacrifices are offered which cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. All the, the the sacrifices that they would make, it still wasn't perfect. It was a picture, but it wasn't perfect. It, it it didn't really take away sins. And then in chapter ten, verse one through four, for the law, since it has only a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very form of things, can never be this by the same sacrifices which they offer continually year by year. Make perfect those who draw near. It can't make people perfect. Those who draw near are His people. Otherwise, would they not have ceased to be offered? Because the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have had consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins year by year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. It didn't do it. And as soon as they walked away, uh, that was kind of taking away their sins for ever how long, and as soon as they walked away, probably within a short amount of time, they'd already sinned again. You know? They're going to have to wait till next year, or wait till next week, or the next day, or. Good to know we have our sins forgiven, isn't it? Sin once for all has been taken care of. Christ is the great high priest. He passed through the heavens, Hebrews 4.14. He entered beyond the veil and uh, it was finished. The blood sprinkled and the mercy seat. That you know, there, There's the, the atonement. Jesus sprinkled His own blood in that sense when He did that. His blood is infinitely more valuable than all the gold and the silver and goats and calves. His blood speaks better than even the blood of Abel. And uh, He secured our redemption. So our great mediator, our substitute, He is the fulfillment of both the high priest, He is the high priest, and also at the same time He is the what? The sacrificial animal. You had a priest, but then you had the animal that was sacrificed. Well, he is the priest offering himself. Because it wasn't going to be any animals. He offered himself. Hebrews 9.14 What about that mercy seat? What about the mercy seat? Well, the high priest was commanded 
to sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat where God's holy presence was made manifest very uniquely. And that's how you have fellowship with Israel. This is a holy place. And it cannot be sent, uh, entered except under the strictest of circumstances that the great high priest once a year and with those animals that, that are offered. And it says in Romans 3.25, it speaks about a propitiation. I don't know if we're going to get to that tonight or not. 3.25 says, whom God displayed publicly, speaking about Christ, as a propitiation or a satisfaction or an appeasement to God the Father, in His blood through faith, what was it demonstrating? This was to demonstrate His righteousness because the forbearance of God, He passed over the sins previously committed. That's where the sins are now forgiven. At the cross publicly put on display, demonstrated His righteousness. But it was the propitiation. His blood is what finally satisfied God the Father. It's the only way that God could be satisfied. Isaiah 53 talks about that, doesn't he? God was pleased to what? To bruise Him. To crush Him. Not just to do that, but it means that's the only way our sins can be forgiven. He doesn't take pleasure in killing His Son just to be killing Him, but that's the only way that we can be right before God. There's nothing we can do. Nothing. Nothing in my hands can I bring to God. The blood of Christ has already done that for us. That little word, F-O-R, means everything. That's And that's substitute. It was for you. Isn't that beautiful? It was for you. So God displayed Jesus as a propitiation by His blood. So just as the mercy seat in the tabernacle, in the temple, that was the place where atonement was made and God's wrath was then averted at that time. That's what it pictured. The cross finally fulfilled all of that. It was all picturing up to when that time would come. The Lord Jesus Christ is the high priest who offers the sacrifice that is offered Himself. And the mercy seat was upon which the sacrifice is offered. Exodus 25.22 We are moving right along, aren't we? You guys remember all these verses? Probably do. There I will meet with you. The, the topic there is mercy seat. I will meet with you, and from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim, which are upon the ark of the testimony, I will speak to you about all that I will give you in commandment for the sons of Israel. Now there are... Uh, instructions given for the sanctuary, the the Ark of the Covenant. Of course, he gives the table of showbread and everything. But now he's mentioning the the mercy seat, and uh, 
course theory, you know, that's that's where I meet with you. I mean, this is the very presence of God. Um, I read the verse twenty-two, right? Okay. Uh, we read the Romans three twenty-five. Uh, this is where God is satisfied. This is where He, a holy God, meets with sinful people. Jesus fulfills the scapegoat. There's a goat that, as I told you earlier, as the high priest confessed Israel's sins, he's doing it for the nation now. The high priest there is confessing their sins to God the Father. And he confesses it over the scapegoat the sins are laid on the goat so as the Father has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Christ. Isaiah 53.6 This is an extremely powerful passage. This is the jewel in the diamond ring. 53.6 All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all, believers, to fall on Him. The Lord has caused the iniquity of us to go on Him, just like the goat. The Father imputed to Jesus every sin of everyone who would be believers. He took the sin of every believer to come that had been before and put it on Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 Now this illustrates the Gospel story of what was happening at the cross, doesn't it? 5.21 He made Him, God the Father did, made Christ, who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. He never sinned, but He bore our iniquities so that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. This is for you. Remember the t-shirt that Caruso put out? This blood's for you. Good way to put it. That's the real true meaning of it. This blood's for you. Better than this bud's for you, isn't it? Ah, boy. The fulfillment of the scapegoat. The Father, as it were, laying His hands on the head of the Son in the sense. The Father, as it were, laying His hands on, on His Son and as a result, He bears our sin. Just like the scapegoat, the Son is banished from the presence of the Father, goes outside the the city gates. That's where Christ was crucified. Outside the city gates. He's the scapegoat. Leviticus, uh, oh, oh. what do they do? That's That's where the carcasses of bodies, the sacrificial animals, were taken to. I mean, you know, it's not a lovely place to to be at. The carcasses there were disposed of. In Leviticus 4.12, it talks about that. 
um, the lepers would be isolated to bear their shame. They would be isolated from the rest of the people. Uh, the blasphemers would be stoned outside the city. All this is found in Leviticus. It's the place of shame. The Son of God was banished outside the city gates so that we, the guilty, treacherous, sinners, sinful men, sons of daughters of Adam, that we'd be welcomed into the very holy presence of God. That is one of the things that was accomplished. So you have sacrifice, and in sacrifice we see in the Old Testament the pictures, and namely the Day of Atonement and the Passover. Passover is something we know it's been fulfilled. We look to that this week, don't we? Should help us really concentrate on this in this Passion Week. I'm just going to get started on this other one, and I probably won't finish. And I'm going to cut right off here at uh, at seven. But I'll get you a definition on propitiation. That word can kind of carry us on into our thinking. When applied to atonement, what it does, it communicates by receiving in Himself the full exercise of the Father's wrath. Complete, full exercise of all the wrath on all the sin of His people were put on Him. Every sin, not just every sin of an individual person, but every person who is of Christ. By the way, He dies for the ungodly. He dies for the sinner. At the same time, He's dying for His own. That's why the propitiation happened. and That's why everything was accomplished at the cross. If He died at the cross for everybody on earth, you know what? His mission is failed because He didn't get it accomplished. Or if it depends upon some act of ours that we have to do something that means He took the bridge halfway and then we have to complete it. What do you think of that? We're all going to fail. It was all accomplished at the cross. But He says, okay, I did this, now it's up to you. It's not done. It is not finished. It's all been accomplished. Everything that He needed. And it was from the what the Father gave to the Son. Like in John 17. That's the ones that He prayed for there. It was the gift from the Father to the Son to the ones You gave Me, Father. Right? I'm going to do this. So that helps us with this atonement because it's specific. He accomplished everything He set out to do. He didn't say, well, I'll throw it out there and whoever comes and believes in Me, then, you know... But that's not an accomplishment. It's somewhat an accomplishment, but it's not very good. It's going to fail. Christ satisfied the Father's anger. It was a righteous anger. He's angry at sinners every day. And He turns away the wrath of the Father. Jesus did that. Our wrath, His wrath was turned away uh, on our sin. 
when Jesus finished that job. If it were not for the substitute, we're bound to suffer the wrath of God for eternity. Without the substitute, we'd all suffer that wrath, which is you could never do it long enough. Our sins are that bad that it would take an eternity that you will pay for that. But there's clear biblical justification here as it averts the wrath. It's a wrath-averting punishment on Christ. That sounds heavy. That's why people do not like that. They don't want to talk about the punishment of Christ. But if they're preaching the Gospel, they do preach about that. He had to die for our sins. And the idea of death is something that is violent. It's a violent death. The cross, but the most violent death it could ever be. The word is hilaskamai. In the Old Testament, that's the... uh, Greek word that's put in the Septuagint. Septuagint is the Greek Old Testament that was written later after the Hebrew and put into the common language. Uh, In the Old Testament, Hebrew, it's kephar. It means to appease. It means to satisfy. It means to turn away God's wrath. And even better, it's the wrath-satisfying appeasement, if we may. That's the, the... Best definition that we can get. Uh, if you went into Exodus 32:30 or Numbers 25:11 through 13, that deals with this propitiation. And uh, I think we'll probably stop there. Um, we looked in Romans 3, and we'll close that out right here. Romans 3:24 and 25. This propitiation is where God is pleased. And then we'll look in Isaiah 53. Then we go. Romans 3, 24, 25. What do we have? Being justified as a gift by His grace through the redemption. A lot of key words there. Do you see justification? Gift, grace, redemption, which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation. A satisfaction. Presented to God. God is pleased with what was done in His blood. He was pleased with the blood that was offered. Now, what, what did I say we were going to turn to? Oh, oh did we? Uh, Isaiah 53. And then, this is so good. Uh, Verse 3, He was despised, forsaken of men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their face, He was despised. We did not esteem Him. Surely our griefs He Himself bore, and our sorrows He carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed Him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. But He was pierced through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon Him. And by His scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us turned to His own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on Him. He was oppressed, He was afflicted, yet He didn't open His mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, like a sheep that is silent before its shears, so He did not open His mouth. By oppression and judgment, He was taken away. As for His generation, who considered that He was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of My people, 
is cut off, he is killed for the transgression of the people. To whom the stroke was due, his grave was assigned with wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. This book was written 700 years before Christ happened. Look at the details on this. How true is God's Word? No book has this kind of thing. Here we go. Here's the key. I'm going to stop in this verse. But the Lord was pleased. He was appeased. He was pleased. He was satisfied to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. That means resurrection. There's death. There's resurrection. You'll have the burial here. He will prolong his days and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hands. You want to read something this week? Study Isaiah 53. It's incredible. Incredible. Listen, we just touched on the tip of the iceberg on the meaning of this. This is New Testament, Old Testament rendering of what Jesus did at the cross as the Gospels put it out and quite graphically and here we see it being put to use and how it all comes into play in our lives. Thank you guys for coming out tonight. It's been a privilege and a blessing to be able to discuss these deep things of God. Bob, would you want to close us there? Heavenly Father, thank You for today, for this time together to study Your Word and to grow closer to You as we ponder on, meditate on uh, what Your words say and at this time of uh, this Passion Week toward Good Friday, toward Resurrection Day. Um, help, to, uh, help us, Lord, to be mindful of others during this time, to um, witness as You make opportunities available that uh, we can share the good news of the Gospel of Jesus Christ and that uh, that all of these words that were spoken tonight from, from Your Holy Word will become more real to, real to us, Lord, throughout the rest of our lives until we, uh, until we see You in glory. You are our hope. In Jesus' name we pray, Amen. Amen.